To Kill a Mockingbird, a novel by Harper Lee, read by Ashton Kelly. Part 1. Chapter 1. When he was nearly 13 years old, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. When it healed and Jim's fears of never being able to play football were assuaged, he was seldom self-conscious about his injury. His left arm was somewhat shorter than his right. When he stood or walked, the back of his hand was at right angles to his body, his thumb parallel to his thigh. He couldn't have cared less, so long as he could pass and punt. When enough years had gone by to enable us to look back on them, we sometimes discussed the le events leading to his accident. I maintain that the Ewells started it all. He said it began the summer Dill came to us. When Dill first gave us the idea of making Boo Radley come out. I said if he wanted to take a broad view of the thing, it really began with Andrew Jackson. If General Jackson hadn't run the creeks up the creek, Simon Finch would never have paddled up the Alabama. And where would we be if he hadn't? We were far too old to settle an argument with a fistfight, so we consulted Atticus. Our father said we were both right. Being Southerners, it was a source of shame to some members of the family that we had no recorded ancestors on either side of the Battle of Hastings. All we had was Simon Finch, a fur-trapping apothecary from Cornwall, whose piety was exceeded only by his stinginess. In England, Simon was irritated by the persecution of those who called themselves Methodists at the hands of their more liberal brethren, and as Simon called himself a Methodist, he worked his way across the Atlantic to Philadelphia, thence to Jamaica, thence to Mobile, and up the St. Stephen's. Mindful of John Weasley's strictures on the use of many words in buying and selling, Simon made a pile practicing medicine. But in this pursuit he was unhappy, lest he be tempted into doing what he knew was not for the glory of God, as the putting on of gold and costly apparel. So Simon, having forgotten his teacher's dictum, on the possession of human chattels, bought three slaves, and with their aid established a homestead on the banks of the Alabama River, some 45 miles above St. Stephen's. He returned to St. Stephen's only once to find a life wife, and with her establish a line that ran high to daughters. Simon lived to an impressive age and died rich. It was customary for the men in the family to remain on Simon's homestead, Finch's landing, and make their living from cotton. The pl 
place was self-sufficient, modest in comparison with the empires around it. The landing nevertheless produced everything required to sustain life except ice, wheat flour, and articles of clothing supplied by river boats from Mobile. Simon would have regarded with impotent fury the disturbance between the North and the South. As it left his descendants stripped of everything but their land, yet the tradition of living on the land remained unbroken until well into the 20th century, when my father, Atticus Finch, went to Montgomery to read law, and his younger brother went to Boston to study medicine. Their sister, Alexandra, was the Finch who remained on the landing. She married a taciturn man who spent most of his time lying in a hammock by the river, wondering if his trot lines were full. When my father was admitted to the bar, he returned to Maycomb and began his practice. Maycomb, some twenty miles east of Finch's Landing, was the county seat of Maycomb County. Atticus's office in the courthouse contained little more than a hat rack, a spittoon, a checkerboard, and an unsullied coat of Alabama. His first two clients were the last two persons hanged in Maycomb County. Jail. Atticus had urged them to accept the state's generosity in allowing them to plead guilty to second-degree murder and escape with their lives, but they were Haverfords, in Maycomb County a name synonymous with jackass. The Haverfords had dispatched Maycomb County's leading blacksmith in the misunderstanding arising from the alleged wrongful detention of a mayor, were imprudent enough to do it in the presence of three witnesses, and insistent that the son of a bitch had it coming to him, was a good enough defense for anybody. They persisted in pleading not guilty to first-degree murder. So there was nothing much Atticus could do for his clients except be present at their departure, an occasion that was probably the beginning of my father's profound distaste for the practice of criminal law. During his first five years in Maycomb, Atticus practiced economy more than anything. For years after, he invested his earnings in his brother's education. John Hale Finch was 10 years younger than my father and chose to study medicine at a time when cotton was not worth growing. But after getting Uncle Jack started, Atticus derived a reasonable income from the law. He liked Maycomb. He was Maycomb County born and bred. He knew his people. They knew him. And because of Simon Finch's industry, Atticus was related by blood or marriage 
to nearly every family in the town. Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. In rainy weather, the streets turned a red slop. Grass grew on the sidewalks. The courthouse sagged in the square. Somehow it was hotter than a black dog suffered on a summer's day. Bony mules hitched to hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks on the square. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon. After their three o'clock naps, and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweet talcum. People moved slowly then. They ambled across the square, shuffled in and out of the stores around it, took their time about everything. A day was twenty-four hours long, but seemed longer. There was no hurry, for there was nowhere to go, nothing to buy and no money to buy it with nothing to see outside the boundaries of Maycomb County but it was a time of vague optimism for some of the people Maycomb County had recently been told that it had nothing to fear but fear itself we lived on the main residential street in town Atticus Jim and I plus Calpurnia, our cook. Jim and I found our father satisfactory. He played with us, read to us, and treated us with courteous detachment. Calpurnia was something else again. She was all angles and bones. She was nearsighted. She squinted. Her hand was as wide as a bed slat and twice as hard. She was always ordering me out of the kitchen, asking me why I couldn't behave as well as Jim when she knew he was older, and calling me home when I wasn't ready to come. Our battles were epic and one-sided. Calpurnia always won, mainly because Atticus always took her side. She had been with us ever since Jim was born, and I had felt her tyrannical presence as long as I could remember. Our mother died when I was two, so I never felt her absence. She was a gram from Montgomery. Atticus met her when he was first elected to the state legislature. He was middle-aged then, she was 15 years his junior. Jim was the product of their first year of marriage. Four years later, I was born. And two years later, our mother died of a sudden heart attack. They said it ran in her family. I did not miss her, but I think Jim did. He remembered her clearly and sometimes in the middle of a game he would sigh at length, then go off and play by himself behind the car house. When he was like that, 
I knew better than to bother him. When I was almost six and Jem was nearly ten, our summertime boundaries, within calling distance of Calpurnia, were Miss Henry Lafayette DeBose's house, two doors to the north of us, and, Rat and the Radley place, three doors to the south. We were never tempted to break them. The Radley place was inhabited by an unknown entity, the mere description of whom was enough to make us behave for days on end. Mr. Bose was plain hell. That was the summer Dill came to us. Early one morning, as we were beginning our day's play in the backyard, Jem and I heard something next door in Miss Rachel Haverford's colored patch. We went to the wire fence to see if there was a puppy. Miss Rachel's rat terrier was expecting. Instead, we found someone sitting looking at us. Sitting down, he wasn't much higher than the collards. We stared at him until he spoke. Hey, hey yourself, said Jim pleasantly. I'm Charles Baker Harris, he said. I can read. So what, I say. I just thought you'd like to know I can read. You got anything needs reading? I can do it. How old are you? Asked Jim. Four and a half? Going on seven. Shoot, no wonder then, said Jim, jerking his thumb at me. Scout Yonder's been reading ever since she was born, and she ain't even started school yet. You look right puny for going on seven. I'm little, but I'm old, he said. Jim brushed his hair back to get a better look. Why don't you come over, Charles Baker Harris, he said. Lord, what a name. It's not any funnier than yours. Aunt Rachel says your name's Jeremy Atticus Finch. Jim scowled. I'm big enough to fit mine, he said. Your name's longer than you are, but it's a foot longer. Folks call me Dill, said Dill, struggling under the fence. Do better if you go over it instead of under it, I said. Where'd you come from? <clears throat> Dill was from Meridian, Mississippi, was spending the summer with his aunt, Miss Rachel, and would be spending every summer in Maycomb from now on. His family was from Maycomb County originally. His <clears throat> mother worked for a photographer in Meridian, had entered his picture in a beautiful child contest and won five dollars. She gave the money to Dill, who went to the picture show twenty times on it. Don't have any picture shows here, except the Jesus ones in the courthouse sometimes, Jim said. Ever see anything good? Dill had seen Dracula, a revelation 
that moved Jim to eye him with the beginning of respect. Tell it to us, he said. Dill was a curiosity. He wore blue linen shorts and buttoned to his shirt. His hair was snow white and stuck to his head like duck fluff. He was a year my senior, but I towered over him. As he told us the old tale, his blue eyes would lighten and darken. His laugh was sudden and happy. He habitually pulled at a cowlick at the center of his forehead. When Dill reduced Dracula to dust, and Jem said the show sounded better than the book, I asked Dill where his father was. You ain't said anything about him. I haven't got one. Is he dead? No. Then if he's not dead, you've got one, haven't you? Dill blushed, and Jem told me to hush. A sure sign that Dill had been studied and found acceptable. Thereafter, the summer passed in routine contentment. Routine contentment was improving our treehouse that rested between twin giant chinaberry trees in the backyard, fussing, running through our list of dramas based on the works of Oliver Optic, Victor Appleton, and Edgar Rice Burroughs. In this matter, we were lucky to have Dill. He played the character parts formerly thrusted upon me. The ape and Tarzan, Mr. Crabtree and the Rover Boys, Mr. Damon and Tom Swift. Thus, we came to know Dill as a pocket Merlin, whose head teemed with eccentric plants, strange longings, and quaint fancies. But by the end of August, our repertoire was vapid from countless reproductions. And it was then that Dill gave us the idea of making Brew Radley come out. The Radley place fascinated Dill. In spite of our warnings and explanations, it drew him to the moon as the moon draws water, but drew him no nearer than the light pole on the corner, a safe distance from the Radley gate. There he would stand, his arms around the fat pole, staring and wondering. The Radley place jutted into a sharp curve beyond our house. Walking south, one faced its porch, the sidewalk turned and ran beside the lot. The house was low, was once white with a deep front porch and green shutters but had long ago darkened to the color of a slate-gray yard around it. Rain-rotted shingles drooped over the eaves of the veranda. Oak trees kept the sun away. The remains of a picket drunkenly guarded the front yard, a swept yard that was never swept. 
where Johnson grass and rabbit tobacco grew in abundance. <clears throat> Inside the house lived a malevolent phantom. People said he existed, but Jim and I have never seen him. People said he went out at night and the moon was down and peeped in windows. When people's azaleas froze in a cold snap, it was because he had breathed on them. Any stealthy small crimes committed in Maycomb were his work. Once the town was terrorized by a series of nocturnal, morbid nocturnal events, People's chickens and household pets were found mutilated. Although the culprit was Crazy Eddie, who eventually drowned himself in Barker's Eddie, people still looked at the Radley place, unwilling to discard their initial suspicion. A negro would not pass the Radley place at night, he would cut across to the sidewalk opposite and whistle as he walked. The Maycomb school grounds adjoined the back of the Radley lot. From the Radley chicken yard, tall pecan trees shook their fruit into the schoolyard. But the nuts lay untouched by the children. Radley pecans would kill you. A baseball hit into the Radley yard was a lost ball, and no questions asked. The misery of that house began many years before Jem and I were born. The Radleys, welcome anywhere in town, kept to themselves a predilection forgivable in Maycomb. They did not go to church. Maycomb's principal recreation, but worshipped at home. Mr. Radley seldom, if ever, crossed the street for a mid-morning coffee break with her neighbors, and certainly never joined a missionary circle. Mr. Radley walked to town at 11.30 every morning and came back promptly at 12, sometimes carrying a brown paper bag that the neighborhood assumed contained the family groceries. I never knew how old Mr. Radley made, how old Mr. Radley laid, made his living, but Jim said he bought cotton, a polite term for doing nothing. But Mr. Radley and his wife had lived there with their two sons as long as anybody could ever remember. The shutters and doors of the Radley house were closed on Sundays, another thing alien to Maycomb's ways. Closed doors meant illness and cold weather only. Of all days, Sunday was the day of formal afternoon visiting. Ladies wore corsets, men wore coats, children wore shoes. But to climb the Radley front steps and call, Hey! of a Sunday afternoon was something their neighbors never did. 
the Radley house had no screen doors. I once asked Atticus if he if it ever had any. Atticus said yes, but before I was born. According to the to neighborhood legend, when the younger Radley boy was in his teens, he became acquainted with some of the Cunninghams from Old Sarum. An enormous and confusing tribe domiciled in the northern part of the country, and they formed the nearest thing to a gang ever seen in Maycomb. They did little, but enough to be discussed by the town and publicly warned from three pulpits. They hung around the barber shop. They rode the bus to Abbotsville on Sundays and went to the picture show. They attended dances at the county's Riverside Gambling Hall, the Dew Drop Inn and Fishing Camp. They exper experimented with stump hole whiskey. Nobody in Maycomb had the, have the nerve enough to tell Mr. Radley that his boy was in with the wrong crowd. One night, in an, ex ex in an excessive spurt of high spirits, the boys backed around the square in a borrowed fliver, resisted arrest by Maycomb's ancient beetle, Mr. Connor, <clears throat> and locked him in the courthouse outside. Outhouse. The town decided something had to be done. Mr. Connor said he knew each and every one of them was, and he was bound and determined that they wouldn't get away with it. So the boys came before the probate judge on charges, charges of disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, assault and battery, and using abusive and profane language in the presence and hearing of a female. The judge asked Mr. Connor why he included the last charge. Mr. Connor said they cussed so loud he was sure every lady in Maycomb heard them. The judge decided to send the boys to the state industrial school where boys of the same were sometimes sent for no other reason than to provide them with food and decent shelter. It was no prison, and it was no disgrace. Mr. Radley thought it was. If the judge released Arthur, Doc Mr. Radley would see to it that Arthur had no further trouble. Knowing that Mr. Radley's word was his bond, the judge was glad to do so. The other boys attended the industrial school and received the best secondary education to be had in the state. One of them eventually worked his way through engineering school at Auburn. The doors of the Radley house were closed on weekdays, as well as Sundays, 
and Mr. Radley's boy was not seen again for fifteen years. But there came a day, barely within Jim's memory, when Boo Radley was heard from and was seen by several people, but not by Jim. He said Atticus never talked much about the Radleys. When Jim would finish, would question him, Atticus only, Atticus's only answer was for him to mind his own business and let the Radleys mind theirs. They had a right to. But when it happened, Jim and Atticus shook his head and said, Mm-mm-mm. So Jim received most of the information from Miss Stephanie Crawford, a neighborhood scold who said she knew the whole thing. According to Miss Stephanie, Boo was sitting in the la- in the living room cutting some some items from the Maycomb Tribune to paste in his scrapbook. His father entered the room. As Mr. Radley passed by, Boo drove the scissors into his parents' leg, pulled them out, wiped them on his pants, and resumed his activities. Mrs. Radley screamed into the street that Arthur was killing them all. But when the sheriff arrived, he found Boo still sitting in the living room, cutting up the Tribune. He was 33 years old then. Miss Stephanie saw old Mr. Radley, said no Radley was going to an asylum, when it was suggested that a season in Tuscaloosa might be helpful for Boo. Boo wasn't crazy. He was high-strung at times. It was all right to shut him up, Mr. Radley conceded, but insisted that Boo be not charged with anything. He was not a criminal. The sheriff hadn't had the heart to put him in jail alongside Negress. So Boo was locked in the courthouse basement. Boo's transition from the basement to the back home was nebulous in Jem's memory. Miss Stephanie Crawford said some of the town's town council told Mr. Radley that if he didn't take Boo back, Boo would die of the mold from the damp. Besides, Boo could not live forever on the bounty of the county. 